According to the National Center for Education Statistics, from 2000 to 2013, the percentage of public school students who attended charter schools increased from 0.7% to 4.8%. Charters now serve about two and a quarter million children in the United States. Their advocates say they're the solution to failing inner-city schools, while critics argue they're privatizing public education without benefiting students. On today's Please Explain, we will be educated about charter schools by Dr. Michael Fabricant, a professor at the Hunter College School of Social Work and executive officer of the Ph.D. program in social welfare, and Dr. Michelle Fine, a distinguished professor of social psychology, women's studies, and urban education at the Graduate Center CUNY. They're the co-authors of Charter Schools and the Corporate Makeover of Public Education, What's at Stake, which is published by Teachers College Press. I'm very pleased to welcome them to our show. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Hello. And we invite our listeners to participate in this discussion. You can give us a call at 212-433-9692. Write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. In your book, you frame the history of charter schools in three movements. When were charter schools first established? Well, the first charters really came out of Minnesota in the 70s, and they were seen as an alternative to public schools in a very modest way. What was their initial stated goal? Initial stated goal really was to work with youngsters outside the public school system, often from poorer communities, in order to provide an enriched education for those children. But they saw themselves as standalone, and it's important to note, not as a substitute for public education, but as an adjunct to public education. So it was a very modest initiative. And many of those were started um, by educators because they saw needs in young people and resources in communities. Um, to satisfy very particular needs, often of struggling students, students who are having a hard time in the more typical public schools. So they were like alternative schools. Do those local community-grown uh, charters still exist? I think a cross-section of locally grown charter schools, um, you know, independent, not part of a network, do exist around the country. Um, and they have variable success and effectiveness, as one would expect. But the trend, really, over the course of the last couple of decades has been less and less standalone charter schools and networks that are both uh, local, regional, and national. They received public funding? Indeed. Bernie Sanders recently responded to a question at a CNN town hall meeting by saying, I believe in public education and I believe in public charter schools. I do not believe in privately controlled charter schools. Doesn't the fact that they receive taxpayer funding make all of them public schools on some level? I think the the point he was trying to make, and, and a larger point that particularly parents are making, is um, privately controlled charter schools. So the alternative schools, the small kind of mama papa charter schools we were talking about in a minute ago, many of those are being closed down and replaced by networks of charter schools that are um, governed by corporate or um, for-profit management organizations um, that have no relationship to the local community, no relationship to the parents, and often are not themselves um, educators. So I think the issue is not 
simply where the money is coming from, but who's governing these schools and to whom they are accountable. And transparency. I'd say that third factor is the transparency of what they do. What about the political aspect of it? Ted Cruz has been more outspoken than other candidates in his support for charter school expansion. And often this becomes a political hot potato. Yeah, I think charter schools and expansion is part of a very serious policy question for the country. And it's one that has been both visible and invisible. That is, the charters are no longer simply an adjunct to in many parts of the country, they are being seen as a substitute for. And in a context in which we have deregulated, ultimately, uh, largely deregulated uh, education uh, systems, these networks where that are less than transparent, um, and we're yield in a relationship to investment and privatization, really, because there's a lot of private money coming in, it's a very different kind of organization. And so the question really is, is that the kind of school system we want to build? Do the for-profit schools, uh, are they funded largely by private money, or do they also receive public funding? They also receive public money. Uh, So how much control does does the public have over them? Uh, uh, Are they they, uh, as watched as uh, homeschooling programs are watched? Do they live by similar rules? I think it's highly variable. Um, there are some school, uh, states that have uh, a greater um, willingness or desire to regulate, others where it's almost unregulated. The states that um, really, like Texas and um, other sort of southern and southwestern states that have greater concentrations of for-profits, they're far less regulated. Um, and in the Northeast and other parts, it's greater regulation, but still far, far less than for public education. Are they intended to function? Go ahead, Michelle. Uh, uh, Sorry. Um, You know, places where charters have been challenged empirically is that they they serve fewer low-income students, fewer English language learners, much, much, much fewer uh, special education students. They also toss kids back into the public schools, often early November after the funds come in. And so the kind of movement of bodies in and out um, rarely shows up in the data. So it, there's the transparency issue that Mike is addressing in terms of money and governance. But even empirically, it's harder to track what, what constitutes a dropout, for instance, um, when particularly at the high school level or even elementary, kids are tossed back into the public schools so they don't look like dropouts because they're still in or pushouts, but they're still in the system. But that sounds like... Uh it's antithetical to the whole idea that charter, that started charter schools in the first place. Yeah, I think that jo- Joe Nathan in in Minnesota started charter schools as a social justice, community based educator, progressive education alternative to the traditional public school. I think that um, for a good ten, fifteen years early charters really carried that commitment. And then it became an opportunity for kind of corporate investment, investment bankers, private monies to um, feed those schools. And many of the small social justice schools got closed down, and now they're being replaced by um, these large networks. There's a 
in the book Ghetto that Mitch Dunyer just published, there's a very interesting backstory on the Harlem Children's Zone. And um, there's a, a tough moment in there when Jeff Canada is confronted by his board of trustees and they're saying, we've got too many struggling kids in this school. We've got to get rid of them. We've got a brand to protect. And I think that was a very hard moment for Jeff Canada. But they ended up kind of um, getting rid of an eighth-grade class of young people um, because the tension between the desires for the investment, the investors to get return on investment, um, was absolutely, as you say, in conflict with the desire to create a public school that would serve the children in an impoverished neighborhood. Are charter schools obligated to have standardized testing? They are. In fact, some of the, sta- the standardized testing really drives, the, to a great extent, the culture and the organization of the schools. I mean, the New York Times, for example, did... Uh, a number of articles on Success Academy, which is considered to be an exemplar. And if you take some of the points that Michelle has just raised, what runs through those articles, and it's not just uh, Success Academy, it's many uh, charter schools, uh, when the drive becomes so strong, the brand is so attached to the test. And it's not to say the test has no value, but when it becomes the single and only driving force largely, what you have is a desire then to produce a student body that's going to maximize the brand. So you push students out in process. You call it something else. The students you let in, we talk about a lottery system, but let's face it, there's creaming on the front end as well. And that occurs simply because the parents that are going to advocate for their students or be a part of the lottery are different than others. And so you wind up with apples and oranges when you're comparing test scores. And that's critical. The New York Times describes Success Academy as polarizing in the community. Because the school just uh, received a $25 million exactly. gift uh, from a, a hedge fund billionaire. So that gives it a leg up over all other schools. Let's dissect that for a moment. Uh, you know, in 2013, Success Academy, according to the New York Times, received uh, $73 million in public monies and approximately $23, $24 million in private. Now they've gotten a $25 million gift at one point. What does that buy? It buys Saturdays where students can come in. It buys longer days. I'm not, I'm not advocating for it, but it creates a disparity between what a public school can offer and what a charter school can offer. Kate Taylor. And what that starts go to ahead, do Michelle. is um, it corrupts the capacity of the public school system to be able to deliver on the promise of educating all of the children. So, so um, you know, I, I live in Montclair, New Jersey. I do a lot of work with folks in Newark. The kind of corrosion of the of the Newark public schools and the kind of unbelievable infusion of dollars into the charters with Chris Christie's just approving another 9,000 seats in the charter system. So the public schools um, are becoming the the site of last choice, often for struggling students, for special ed kids that the charters won't take, for free lunch, not reduced lunch, and for the kids that are tossed back um, out of the charter system back into the public school system. So there's a, a profound corrosive effect on the public schools once there's a, um, a tipping point. And the, the real cynicism in a place like Newark, which is being redesigned to mimic what happened in New Orleans and Detroit and Philadelphia, um, is that instead of asking for new schools to be approved by the state, again, 
some of which could have been those mama papa social justice schools that they're now requesting simply an expansion of seats for existing um corporate reform charters so nine thousand seats are getting added but those don't constitute necessarily new schools that have to be um approved kate taylor who writes about education for the new york times describes the harsh teaching methods at success uh, she wrote that students' performance on weekly spelling and math quizzes is publicly displayed on charts in the hallway. Is that unique to that school? Is that a trend in charters? I think. Uh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, Michelle. Um, you know, I hear that uh, about a lot of the charters. I certainly hear it about charters in New or- in uh, New Orleans, where students are told walk down the hall, do not do not make eye contact, do not speak, do not talk, do not lift your arms. Um, so some charters have, have clearly quite militaristic, compliance-oriented, dis- and heavy disciplinary environments. I think others are probably quite creative and and progressive. And, you know, I'm sorry to say that there are probably some um, really heavy authoritarian disciplinary practices in some public schools as well. Well, so you mentioned New Orleans. Read everything. New, sorry. New Orleans is home to the Recovery School District, the first all-charter district. Yeah. And prior, yeah. uh, prior to the charter school takeover, New Orleans schools were said to be in academic crisis, but the Recovery School District, most of which are charters, posted a 20% gain in state achievement tests between 2007 and 2010. So this is the success story that is cited to... Um, as a, a rationale for charter schools everywhere else, it's part of the you know the rationale is of course testing and the I mean part of the question always that has to be asked because the composition of the New Orleans student population changed dramatically um, and after uh, the flood. Um, but it, these schools tend to be segregated. Oh yes, I mean all the systems in New York being the most segregated system, frankly, in the country. But yes, the systems are generally segregated. I wanted just to, uh, for a moment, you know, so are we comparing apples and oranges? We don't know what that student population looked like. And if you, look, if you get more money and you can make greater investment and you can target that investment for expanded day and expanded weekend and your ex- your singular focus is on raising test scores, you can do it. The question is, and you can do it either substantially or you know, marginally. Um, whether the populations are the same or not, I question as public school systems. They're clearly not. But you give the public school system the same amount of money with the same kinds of uh, opportunities, they would do the same. That's not, to me, that's not the question. I want to go back to your original question. What does it mean to teach on the basis of humiliation? And that's really what that article was about. It was really about students being taught within a culture of humiliation in order to achieve. And some would argue that's terrific. I mean, it's the only way that you're going to move inner city kids, you know, which I have real questions about around race and humiliation and, and, and questions of racism. But put that to the side for the moment. I wouldn't have wanted to have been humiliated Ex- by a teacher. Exactly. I think I was a few times, and it was a very painful experience. It's very painful. And the question we have to ask ourselves is both what's the short and long-term consequences? What are the, you know, for some, it drives them out. Some stay in. But then what does it mean over time? And the other part of this, of course, is what is education then associated with? And how does one become a learner? And what does it mean to be a learner and to be educated? It seems to me none of those questions are really explored. It's all tied to a test score, and that is part of the brand. 
We're going to take a little break here, and when we come back, we'll take some of your calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. My guests are Dr. Michael Fabricant, professor at Hunter College School of Social Work and executive officer of the Ph.D. program in social welfare, and Dr. Michelle Fine, a distinguished professor of social psychology, women's studies, and urban education at the Graduate Center at CUNY. They are co-authors of... Charter Schools and the Corporate Makeover of Public Education, What's at Stake. It's published by Teachers College Press. And we're talking about charter schools on today's Please Explain. We're talking about charter schools on today's Please Explain with Michelle Fine and Michael Fabricant, the co-authors of Charter Schools and the Corporate Makeover of Public Education, What's at Stake. We're inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wmic.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. And Joe asks about religious charter schools on our show page. Are they a loophole in which religious schools are eligible to receive public funding? Yeah, there's there's actually a growth of um, cyber charters, many of which have a religious orientation. Uh, Pennsylvania, I think, has the um, the most kind of quote open or liberal. Uh, commitment to cyber charters. Um, even in Milwaukee, a substantial amount of the um, voucher money and charter money is going to religious schools. So vouchers and so tuition tax credits are, are associated with charter schools? Uh, well, they, the vouchers have been associated with religious schools mm-hmm. in, in Milwaukee. So the I think the firewall that we all assume has existed between religious schools and public dollars is uh, growing more and more porous. And the, the kind of use of cyber charters has uh, opened that up substantially. And just quickly on cyber charters, um, in Florida there was a law that required a certain full-time equivalent investment per student. Uh, it had to do with the physical structure and what, what was created by the state were cyber charters that were able to work around the legislation. These are and online schools? These are online schools. Up to K-12? Uh, K-12. 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 And you, they K-12. could effectively circumvent the full-time equivalent investment. So what it provided, the charter, cyber charters, was further disinvestment in public education by reducing the per cap cost. Let's take some calls. And reducing the number of teachers and undermining uh, unionized districts. I mean, there are lots of um, kind of side benefits. Teachers unions complain that uh, charter schools are non-union. Are there any unionized charter schools? Yes, there are. There are. There are the exceptions. Are. Green Dot is one. Uh, California, particularly, a number of Green Dot. And there are other schools as well, and there's organizing going And the UFT has some charter schools in New right. York. Right. Jeff from Maplewood, New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking the call. Uh, so my question, I just wanted to return to the earlier point about um, the corrosive nature of uh, some public money going to some of the charter schools in places like Newark. And uh, while I understand that, my question is, what if you're speaking directly to, uh, you know, a parent in one of these schools in Newark that has historically been one of the worst in the country in terms of its performance, and you're looking for the best education for your child, what do you tell the, that parent? 
Well, Do you just tell them to wait and everything will be okay? Might. You know, in Newark, in Newark, New Jersey, there are lots of very interesting conversations happening among parents cause, and grandparents. Lots of people have a kid in a regular school, a kid who's in a charter school, a kid who's been thrown out of a charter school. And uh, so people, again, people have no romance with the typical, um, the historically miseducating, particularly in low-income black communities, um, schools. And yet people are really understanding in places like Newark the need for a system of public schools um, where parents have a say that are held accountable, um, to meaningful standards and to and to safety, and so I have no judgments about parents making decisions about where to send their children. I do have serious concerns about the state privileging an alternative to public schools um, in a way that dismantles the system that would serve all children. Thank, thank my, you for calling us, Jeff. I would just say that my son taught in Newark in both charter schools and at St. Benedict's, which was just covered by. Uh, um, television, national television yeah, program, 60 minutes. 60 minutes. And he left the charter school uh, system because of, uh, for many reasons, largely having to do with what we're describing presently, but most critically, that he wasn't able to engage the students in a kind of learning that in, extended beyond the test and felt that many of the students were being, and felt that they were being, uh, well, force-fed facts, force-fed to achieve on a test, which is not important, but when the other parts of what they wanted to do to engage in a larger, more expansive learning uh, was put on the table for the school with others, that was ultimately squashed. And so we have to ask ourselves what kind of education at that charter school as well. Those kids were not representative, and he would be the first to say they were not representative of the larger cohort of students in Newark. So, you know, what you've got are charter schools really serving a very relatively select group of students being compared on the basis of test scores to public school students, and the kind of education that's being offered too often being, frankly, geared to tests, and as a consequence, in my estimation, second rate. Benedict's, on the other hand, offers something richer, qualitatively better, and it's because it's enabling students to reach for something more collectively, and they're not driven by tests. They're driven by those students' experiences. 97% of those students go on to college, and 94% complete. But it is a religious school. It is. Nick from Bayville, Long Island. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, Leonard. How are you? Thank you for uh, taking my call, and it's been a very enlightening topic. My question was that uh, it seems like they retain the teachers in the, uh, in the in the schools for two to three years, and long-term, what's the effect? Um, because right now we do have a major shortage of teachers. You know, do you have any idea what this, the effect long-term is? Because we already have a shortage of, of teachers. And there's also such a high turnover rate of teachers. Is it because of the pay? Charter school teachers are twice as likely as public school teachers to, in fact, 50% of charter school uh, success academy, they churn their teachers 50% a year, according to the Times. Much higher rate of turnover. It's not simple. Pay is probably, in many instances, comparable. It's that the teachers work 12, 13, 14 hours a day with very little autonomy and discretion, often in highly prescribed ways, and in the case of success academy and others, 
often doing teaching in ways that they find offensive because of the humiliation of students. So they leave, and they leave when they're young, and they leave after what they've learned. That certainly creates various kinds of disjunctures. So where do they go is the question. There's also a lot of a lot of evidence that high teacher turnover is really disruptive to schools. That when you have schools with high teacher turnover, you have to um, it's very hard to have kind of a progressive disciplinary policy where people know each other and can take care of each other. So you're much more likely to rely on suspension, expulsion, moving kids in and out because there there's not a strong relational culture um, the way in both the best private schools and the best public schools. We've got communities of educators who have developed rituals and routines for building um, both an academic and an ethical community. So this idea of churn is disruptive to individual students, but also to um, sustaining school cultures that can, can support student growth. Do any of the charters take special education students and English as a second language students? They do. They have much, much, much um, lower percentages of both. And the kinds of disabilities that kids in charter schools have tend to be relatively uh, minor um, and uh, much less on the kind of emotionally um, disturbed category and more on the learning disability, light learning disability end, but much lower. Um, rates and often when when uh, charter schools discover that a kid has more significant disabilities that counseled out on the basis of you know we're not really equipped to handle the level of uh, disability that your child has. On Saturdays, sometimes I work with parents in Newark at a freedom school that an organization called Pulse Runs, and lots of mothers and grandmothers talked about um, having kids in charter schools, and one woman said that her first grade grandson, he, quote, acts up after lunch, so she's been told that she has to pick him up every day at 1230. And then another woman said that she has a grandson who's a, um, in high school, and she said, you know, my grandson, African-American, is doing well at the at the charter school, but I'm a little worried that he's learning to um, be uncomfortable being black, dislike Newark, and they're raising money for him to go off to a boarding school. So I'm I'm worried to, uh, about what's happening to him culturally. So yeah, they accept some um, young people with disabilities. You can go on um, Bruce Baker's website, School Finance 101. He's got a beautiful breakdown of free lunch, English language learners, and special education categories for all of the schools in New Jersey, charter schools and regular schools in New Jersey. We don't have time to address this, but Wendy on Twitter writes, it's not only that small charters are closed, the real evil is closing public schools to these discriminatory charters. I think that's that's right. I mean, that's huge. That's absolutely a big, big issue. And we have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but uh, thank you both so much for being on our show, Dr. Michelle Fine, Dr. Michael Fabricant, their book, Charter Schools and the Corporate Makeover of Public Education, What's at Stake. It's published by Teachers College Press.